0: I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. And our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. This week, I had the pleasure of having a conversation with the best selling author. Danny Shapiro for her latest, uh, memoir called Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. I mean, we've interviewed Danny before. She's a friend. Uh, she did an event at RJ Joya's, uh, last Saturday night. Everybody, we had a packed house. Everybody braved the weather despite the threats to come out, uh, because they didn't want to miss Danny so we had a just a great conversation because her book really touches on very profound issues of what makes a family how do we identify ourselves and how do we upend all that when what we thought was true is not true anyway it's a fun conversation uh, take a listen Danny Shapiro has explored. Through her previous nine best-selling books, the profound question of how we come to be who we are, how the threads of family, secrets, tragedy, spirituality, and joy layer and intertwine to create a unique being. Now in her fifth memoir, Inheritance, she reveals that the edifice that informed her identity was toppled raising the fundamental question of what is and isn't critical to our identity, our story, and how we go on to live a newly defined life. In addition to her 10 books, Danny has written for The New Yorker, Salon, Elle, The New York Times appeared on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. Not many people get to say that. She gives writers conferences all over the world and is a co-founder of Siren Land Writers' Conference held in Positano, Italy. This latest book has received deserved acclaim and attention from NPR, New York Times, The Today Show, and dozens of reviews, and its timing is brilliant. It reflects the zeitgeist of our times, issues of identity, family secrets, and how we tell our stories. Danny, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thanks, Roxanne. It is so great to be with you. (laughs) I know. So this is fun. So for uh, fair disclaimers, right, I think you have to do that now. Danny and I are friends, and I've been a fan for a long time. And I had the honor of being a student of Danny's at that renowned Siren Land in Positano. And if we have time, uh, we'll get to this. But, Danny, this book feels like the culmination of... All of your books, give us a a snapshot of what started this story
1: so and and it's funny that you say that because i I think of inheritance now as the book that I was literally born to write, yeah, literally um so about two and a half years ago, my husband was interested in doing just commercial DNA testing not for any particular reason, sort of recre- recreational DNA testing, you know, mm-hmm. maybe find some fourth cousins and have something. <laughs> some rich relatives. <laughs> you know, I actually think it was spurred on because his parents were elderly. Mm. Um, his mom already had Alzheimer's, was losing her memory at a rapid rate, and and his dad was old, and I think that there was just this desire to maybe connect around, mm-hmm. around ancestry, and so... Um, He just casually asked me if I wanted to do it too. He had gotten one of those emails uh, that these companies send out right around the holidays where they drop their prices, which is why it's become like the most popular Christmas or Hanukkah gift. And it's a gift thing. It's It's, now the big gift. It's a gift. It's a stocking stuffer, which is hilarious. It's like, you know,
0: Mm. hey, guess what? in your stocking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll stuff your stocking. (laughs) So so he asked me if I wanted to do it too. And uh, I'm a little haunted by this in retrospect because I so easily could have said no. Because Mm. I was certain of my ancestry. I thought I knew everything that there was to know about it.
0: And your ancestry defined you.
1: My ancestry really did define me. I was someone, this isn't true for all of us, but I was someone, especially on my father's side of the family, who came from a long line of um, Orthodox Jews, observant Jews, who had a um, a very kind of storied history. um, And... Um, I write in the book, you know, it was a a family conscious of of its own posterity. And that sense, that consciousness of posterity had been sort of passed down to me. And my father had died when I was 23 years old and so much of my... Suddenly. Suddenly in a a, a car accident. And, And so for all of these years, a lot of my connection to him was sort of feeling like a part of this family... That and, and this lineage uh, mm. that he had come from. Um, it, was, it was defining to me, and it was also defining to me as a writer. All of my books had, eerily so, had something or another to do with family secrets. My fiction, especially. You know, one, one of the things I will sometimes say to my students is that theme is just a fancy literary term for obsession. Mm. <laughs> I like that. You know, and we don't choose our obsessions. We don't choose our themes as writers. And a theme of mine... Was the corrosive power of secrets in a family, mm. um, and so so I said yes to these DNA, you know, to, to to going ahead and spitting in a plastic vial and having my DNA evaluated. And when the results were returned, um, you know, to us a couple of months later, they revealed a completely different uh, story than the one that I had always known and. Uh, the first, the first revelation was that I was about half Jewish, fifty two percent,
0: which is stunning all by itself.
1: All by itself, except that I, my certainty was such that I knew where I came from. That I thought, well, maybe all Jews are fifty two percent. You know, there's the diaspora. There were pogroms. There was, you know, this history of, you know, who knows? Maybe we're all mongrels in some way. I was going to go with that. Uh, certainly, it wasn't raising alarm bells for me. But then. A first cousin appeared on my page on um, on ancestry dot com, who was a complete stranger to and me. And you knew all your first cousins. I knew all my first cousins. Yeah. So suddenly, here is this male first cousin identified by initials, um, and then all sorts of other names appearing. Um, because you know, for your listeners who haven't done this, if you if you have your DNA tested, and um, there are other people who um, with whom you share dna who with, with whom you, you you are related genetically they'll show up on your page right um, if
0: they have made their dna public oh, open. right yes you could you could
1: you do c- it and say i don't you- want Cor- correct you could right. do you could do that and be completely private about it but most people aren't because most people are doing it in order to connect and in order to find relatives right so suddenly there was this kind of whole world of names that were totally unfamiliar to me and many of which were not Jewish and I just was so so what happened then was I have a much older half sister from a previous marriage of my dad's and she and I were not in close touch but Um, I sent her an email. I had recalled that years earlier she had told me she had done um, genetic testing, in Mm -hmm. her case mostly because she was interested in um, hereditary diseases and just learning more about her health. Um, And I I recalled that, so I wrote to her and I asked her if she had her results. And indeed, she did have her results, and she sent us the, um, it's called a kit number, it's just an identifying number, series of numbers, um, so that we could compare her kit number with my kit number, which is a very easy thing to do. There's a site that specializes in that called Jed Match. Mm. Um So that was the night that my life changed. Um, when uh, my husband uploaded my kit and my half-sister's kit to JedMatch, I write in the book that it took 0.453 eighths of a second for the results to come back. And the results spelled out very clearly, that we were not sisters. Mm-hmm. That we were not related. Not remotely. We were not related. Not remotely related. We were as related as anybody that I would pass by on the street. You and me. Right. We're probably closer. <laughs> <really>. <laughs> and um, which would make sense. And um, that was the beginning of unraveling this massive uh, mystery of mm. how, how how had it come to be that my father my beloved father, who I had spent my whole life trying to piece together, to piece back together in my in my work and, and thinking about him, very, very connected to him, that he had not been my biological father.
0: I don't want to um, share all of the mystery because there is an element of this fabulous book that you're seduced by the evolution of the story. So I, I don't want to take that away from people. But very quickly at the beginning of the book, in under thirty-six hours, you figure out who this person is and how they came to be your biological father.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, it was it was so the the domino effect. Once I began to, um, you know, to, to unravel this. I mean, it should be said I had a couple of clues. I had a few. You had a brief conversation with your mother. I had had a brief conversation with my mother many years earlier, um, and I think I can say this because, in a way, the book is. I understand that the reading experience of it is in part like finding out what happens next, but the deeper part of the book is the why and the how, and the absolutely, and, and you know, I've you know, I've just started being on tour for this book and sometimes in audiences, in a Q&A, somebody will, will reveal something and you know, some another audience member will say, oh, no, that's a spoiler. There aren't really, really spoilers. spoilers. So, So what I would say is, yes, I recalled completely in absolute clarity a conversation that I had had with my mother when I was 25 years old. It was the anniversary, the second anniversary of my father's death. You were in a car, right? Well, originally we were at Sarah Lawrence College at a reading. I was a graduate student there. And I introduced my mother to a friend of mine um, named Rachel. And um, and my mother said, oh, hi, Rachel. Nice to meet you. Where are you from? And Rachel said, Philadelphia. And my mother said, oh, my daughter was conceived in Philadelphia. It's an odd turn of phrase. It was odd. And it was strange that if this was a story, then I didn't know it. And she's telling this perfect stranger standing around before, you know, at a reception before a reading at Sarah Lawrence. And um, – I said, Mom, what do, you, what do you mean? I've never heard that. And she said, oh, it's not a pretty story. And later that night, I was driving my mother back to New York City. Uh, I remember everything about it. I was driving, she was in the passenger seat, um, and we were on the Sawmill River Parkway. And I said, Mom, you cannot just say that the story of my conception was not a pretty story. That's not okay. And she proceeded to tell me just a few things. She told me that she and my father had had trouble conceiving me that uh, they went to an institute. That was the word she used in Philadelphia, uh, where and that my father had slow sperm. That was a phrase she used, and um, that the institute was run by a world famous doctor, and he was famous for being able to pinpoint precisely when a woman was ovulating, which was
0: pretty stunning. It was cutting
1: edge at um, that time. You're right. fifty. I'm fifty. I'm. I'm I was, now I'm fifty-five. I'm now fifty-six, but I was fifty-four. Well, but I was, I was, yeah, so... But nonetheless, in those days... Early 1960s, reproductive medicine. So this was, this was cutting edge in a, in a, in a world, which it must be said, it was kind of the wild west of, you know, lots of... And
0: he focused on male infertility. Well, he
1: did. That's something I later figured out. Mm. But, but so they went and, and, and then she said to me, um, and I would call your father when I would know exactly when I was ovulating, I would call your father um, at work in New York City, and he would drop everything, and he would come Dash to Philadelphia, racing to Philadelphia to do the procedure. And I said, what procedure? And my mother said, artificial insemination. So that was kind of the end of that conversation. But, but you it, had that in your pocket. I did, and it was very clear to me from what she was saying, even though that's an odd thing to find out about your conception, it was very clear to me that she was saying, we, your father and I, conceived you together via artificial insemination. So one other thing happened back then um, in 1988, which was that um, that stuck with me a little bit. So I called my half-sister, who's 15 years older than I am, and so she was a teenager at the time that I was so born. She might have so been aware of she stuff. She might have been aware if there was something to be aware of, and I asked her if she had known whether my parents uh, had been having you know issues with with, with um, being able to conceive And she said, no, I I mean, I guess I kind of knew something was up, but I didn't really know the details. But you might really want to look into that because there was a practice in those days of mixing sperm. Mm -hmm. And I remember this, too. I remember being on the other end of the phone and thinking, what? And also, what are you saying to me? You're say, my half-sister um, is a psychoanalyst. And I remember thinking, like, psychoanalyze that. You're basically telling me, maybe we're not sisters. You know, maybe, maybe dad's just my dad and not your dad. And I really... Little sibling rivalry. Little, little, little sibling <laughs> rivalry, like, you know... Like the ultimate. He's actually a, not your father right. or not as fully as he is mine. Exactly. That's what I kind of thought was going on. But it sufficiently disturbed me that I went back to my mother... And I remember that we were walking uh, somewhere in New York City, and I said, Mom, this is, I heard this. I heard this, that, that there was a practice in those days of mixing sperm. And one of the reasons why this is really important, as I then unraveled the story for myself, is that my mother did not express, at that moment, any kind of surprise or dismay or... Um, Denial. Even just the phrase, mixed sperm. If you've never heard that before... You're taken aback by it. It's, it's a very... And this is the late 80s.
0: Yes. It's not today where a lot of this is much more common currency.
1: Well, except mixed sperm today would be would, t- would take people aback. Yeah. You know, that, that's I not, guess that's right. That's not done. I mean, that was a practice that, in fact, I learned was done up through probably the mid-1970s mm-hmm. um, until finally it was decided that it wasn't a good idea anymore. But the fact that my mother didn't have any reaction... Is something that I later thought a lot about. Like, oh, mixed sperm? No, I mean just nothing. And she um, just didn't miss a beat. And she said, "Absolutely not. Can you imagine such a thing? It would have meant that your father wouldn't have known that his child was Jewish." Mm. Later, which is not technically correct. Not technically right? correct. Not technically correct. And also later, my husband pointed out she didn't actually answer my question. She she answered Aunt, my question with a question. Well, she is Jewish. Yes, and, and <laughs> that's what Jews do. <laughs> yes, no, that's right. Right, we're not going to actually kind of put put a put a full stop on this. Um, but she said, "Can you imagine such a thing?" You knew your father, and the fact is, I couldn't imagine such a thing because my father was such a um, black and white thinker when it came hmm. to um, to his Judaism, and even though. Technically, in Judaism, I would be considered Jewish because my mother is Jewish, and it's, it's a matrilineal um, way of, 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 Trac- of... Tracking, of tracking, defining. Of defining. Um, but I couldn't imagine my father being putting himself in a situation where he wouldn't have known. So that whole series of conversations came flooding back to me when I was faced with the uh, irrefutable... Uh, ancestry results, that mm. my father wasn't my biological father. So I, what I understood, and it was um, it was only 36 hours until I could sort of solve one piece of this, but I understood that my father wasn't my biological father and that I never went with the idea of maybe my mother had an affair. I knew because of that conversation um, right. in, in 1988 that that it must have meant that the sperm was mixed and that my biological father was a sperm donor. So, Danny, when I read the book, which
0: I read in manuscript or galley, I read it a while ago, and I actually reread it um, this morning. So three themes sort of resonated with me as I read the book. One is this complicated notion of sperm donors and in what context is a sperm donor your family? You know, that that whole notion, not to mention a topic that we probably won't get to talk about that sperm donors might have, you know, there are stories now of sperm donors having eight kids or 80 kids and they're, you know, they're forming their own convention as being half a uh, sibling. So there's that issue. There's the issue of, how did this shake your definition of who you are, who you are? And the third was, how did this shape how you thought of your parents? So let's start with this question about your parents. Do you think you find it or would find it more comforting
1: that they did know or they didn't know? At first, I really clung to the idea that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. And, and that felt, I, w- I wouldn't say anything felt comforting, yeah. but it felt um, more tolerable that the three of us were all in the dark. Yeah. Um, I write in the book, either either there were three of us in the dark, or two of us, or only one. Um, I was quickly disabused of that being a possibility by every single expert I talked to, by anyone who knew the world of reproductive medicine and the way things were handled in the early 1960s, by even, you know, an elderly rabbi that I went yeah, to talk see. Talk about the conversation with Rabbi Lukstein. So I, um, I, I very quickly started researching once I had made this discovery, partly because I was trying to... Uh, I'm a writer, I'm a storyteller, and I was trying to piece together the story. And partly because everyone involved who might know something was very old, if they were still living. So, time, so there was such a sense of urgency to this. So I reached out to this very well-known and well-respected rabbi named Haskell Lookstein, uh in, in New York City, who had known my he father. He knew your dad, right? He knew my dad, yeah. he knew my grandfather. His father, who was a rabbi, knew my grandfather, the family's you know, went back and um, and I had wondered a couple of things. I wondered whether my father might have gone to seek rabbinical advice, and if he had, perhaps he had gone to Lukstein. Mm-hmm. And I also um, had read up on Jewish uh, the body of Jewish law, which is known as halacha, um, and what the uh, feeling was about donor insemination at that time, and the feeling about donor insemination at that time. Uh, was the word was an abomination. It was, it was considered an abomination. I think that changed with time. Um, I'm not sure with the Orthodox because mm-hmm. there's all sorts of reasons, hair-splitting reasons why it's yeah. still maybe not okay.
0: But uh, Excuse me, because one of the things I think someone not that long ago told me is that an Orthodox rabbi would say that artificial insemination was okay if you, the male, stayed with your sperm. Literally, so you knew it was yours. I think. Who? I, I'm. I think I'm remembering that.
1: I, I think that probably now, at this point in 2019, it's rabbi by rabbi in terms of what the uh, like what, everything, like else. everything else. Yeah. But so when I went to see Rabbi Luckstein, um, first of all, it became very quickly clear to me that he knew nothing. He didn't. He he didn't. He wasn't sitting there waiting for me, thinking, "Oh my God, I'm going to have to tell her that I had this you, conversation." He knew this. That he. Knew this moment would come. No, he did yeah. not, He definitely did not know this moment would come. And then once he really understood the story, and you know, I, I explained to him everything that had happened, he said to me, um, what story would ease your heart? Mm, I love that line. And I said, the true one, which is really how I felt. I just was after the truth, even if it was painful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and then he said, um, well, you're, you'll never know. And I... I remember thinking to myself, I didn't say this, but I thought, "You, you don't know who you're dealing with. <laughs> I'm going to know. I don't know how I'm going to know, but I'm going to know." Now, in fact, you don't I, really know. That's what I was about to say. I, I, there is always going to be um, some part of me that can't be entirely a hundred percent sure what happened. I was able to get as close as I possibly could to what I believe is the most likely scenario, and. And their relationship, which you've written about, your parents' relationship, could suggest that one would and one wouldn't. Right. So the next, the next place I went with that um, was my mother masterminded this and somehow got the doctor to agree to not tell my father. Yeah. Which I, wouldn't be out of character. No, it wouldn't be out of character. It, it actually seemed like something she absolutely would have done. However, I also couldn't get anybody... Who knew that world on board with me for that? There were some, but he was, but he was a pretty unorthodox guy. The guy who was, who what was his name, Doctor? They were all unorthodox. Yeah, um, his name was Doctor Edmund Ferris, and he was at his own institute um, on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and but, and all of these places were more or less the wild, the wild west. Yeah, but. I I know some things now, even beyond what's in the book. For Mm -hmm. example, I had a a conversation recently with a woman in her 80s um, who conceived her children at Ferris around the same time as I was conceived. So that is about as close to being there as I'm ever going to get. And she told me that um, frank conversations were had between the couple and the doctor. Blood type was discussed and matched. Um, she said, "No, no couple would have gone to the Ferris Institute, and not known what they were there for. It was known for donor sperm. That is why they were there. So, and then she said that all these the euphemisms of the day that went on. Couples were told it was a treatment that it would help boost, yeah. their, you know, all of that. But then, and 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 one more piece of it was that women, once successfully pregnant, would be told." oh, this is so amazing, the timing is so interesting, you must have already been pregnant when you got here. So on the one hand... They gave you some tools to deceive yourself. They gave you a whole bucket of tools. So if depending on where you fell on the scale of being a realist and a pragmatist, you could go into a permanent state of denial that this ever happened. Um, And I believe with my parents that they each fell somewhere on, on, that, that, continuum. on that continuum. I yeah. think my mother was more deeply in the continuum than my father. I think my father, especially as I grew up and I looked so other than he and his family, I, I can't imagine it, that he didn't suspect, if not outright, know, like carry that knowledge. But the thing to go back to your question, Roxanne, is that it felt like a betrayal it was about the se- yeah. it was about the secrecy it wasn't about the fact of it it was about the the fact that i hadn't known the truth of my identity and so much of my life had been formed by not knowing so danny do you think what do you think the impact would have
0: been on you if you had been told as a teenager at an age when you might have understood the The notion you, you you wouldn't see it being earlier than that. It's not quite like adoption where there's. So how do you think? What you know if you think about this huge fork in the road, a secret not a secret. What do you think the impact of being told as a teenager would have been?
1: Well, a couple of things. Just to go back to one thing: the the thinking today actually is that kids should know from the time that they're as like babies. You know, there are books with trees and roots and acorns and seeds yeah. and all sorts of ways of explaining, Lots of metaphors. To, explaining to children, um, you know, the, 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 the truth of their identity in that way. Um, obviously, none of that was available to my no. parents. I mean, the, the, the paradox is that even though it felt like a massive betrayal to me that my parents knew this about me and I didn't know it about myself, I think that if they had told me when I was a teenager, I'm not sure I would have survived it. I really because mm. that I, was a difficult time for you as it was it was difficult I, and I was so connected to my dad, and I was actually really, very much not connected to my mother and ironically the, the, ironically and and the the idea of being um donor conceived in these communities that you refer to that didn 't exist um, no one knew anyone who and there was such secrecy. Around it, that even if even around infertility, around there was shame and secrecy and trauma surrounding it. So, if I had been told that, what I would have been left with is I'm the only person that I know in the entire world who was conceived in Mm. this way, and I'm never gonna know my biology, I'm never gonna know, you know, who my biological father is because. You know, DNA testing, all that stuff didn't exist when I was a teenager. So it would have just been left with this kind of massive mystery in that regard. So one of the things I want to get to
0: is um, there are a lot of beautiful parts um, in the book, but one that I uh, particularly found poignant about this idea of what creates a family was your conversation with your father's sister, on Shirley. And I wonder if you would read a little piece here from the book that I think is probably the most beautiful definition I can imagine of family.
1: Okay. I'll, I'll read the moment where I tell her, Dad isn't my biological father, I said. Five words, five words and a lifetime. Her eyes were locked onto mine I was afraid she was going to stop breathing. Not a blink, not a sound. I feared it was as if I had said to her, You're not mine. I'm not yours. We don't belong to each other. It felt violent. The world around us fell away. She leaned slightly forward, reached out, and grabbed my hand. I'm not giving you up, she said. The thin shell holding me together cracked and suddenly I was weeping with my whole body. And you'd better not be giving me up, she said, (laughs) every syllable deliberate. I'm not giving you up, Cheryl, I sobbed. I was so afraid that I have fewer years ahead of me than behind me, she said, and you are my brother's daughter. She trained her whole 93-year-old self, every cell in her being in the direction of consoling me, every bit of energy. It was the purest manifestation of love I had ever experienced. Knowing what you know, you're more of a daughter to Paul than you can possibly imagine. You take something that isn't your own and you breathe life into it. You create it and it becomes your creation. You are an agent to help my brother express the finest kind of love.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, we won't talk at this moment about your relationship with your biological father. But if you think about what you know now. So if we consider Inheritance the penultimate of your books, how does that make you look at your previous books, particularly your memoirs? Do they feel like they are the inevitable lead up to this? Like like you knew the punchline? (laughs) Somewhere in your being you knew the punchline? Or does it make you think about what you wrote then through sort of another kaleidoscope?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's such an unusual position to be in to have this record of what I thought know, then. Thought and you know there's there's a there's a phrase that I use in inheritance um that I came across um which is um the unthought known. It mm. it comes from this psychoanalyst named Christopher Bolas and the unthought known what we can what we know somewhere deep inside of us but can never allow ourselves to think. It's too dangerous to think of it, think it. And I look back and my memoirs, and not only, I mean, both in a literary sense and in terms of um, what the stories that I told myself about myself and about my parents and our lives together and who we were to each other and who they were to each other, uh, which was a source of fascination and obsession to me. And everything that I wrote, Still remains true. Yeah. It's just not the whole truth. I didn't have this missing piece that made like all the lights suddenly blink on. Yeah. Um, so, it doesn't unravel it. My sense no. of it, having read all your books, it doesn't unravel
0: what they are. It feels like a journey that a reader is on with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've already been hearing from readers of mine that now. That they've read Inheritance. They want to go back and, and re-read. Re-de- reread devotion, reread slow yeah. motion. Um, and I have dipped into looking at some of my, my older books uh, as I was writing Inheritance. And I was stunned to see moments on the page where I thought to myself, but I knew. Yeah. I mean, in my book, Still Writing, there is a passage where I write about snooping through my parents' things as a child. And I was writing about it and still writing because I was writing about sort of being a detective, you know, in my own life. And, and But there was a moment there where, the, where the, the line that stopped me cold was, what was I searching for? A clue. A reason. Mm. And I, I read that and I just had chills and I thought I was looking for a reason that would help me to understand why things didn't quite add up. And because they didn't. Yeah. Um, but I really want to stress that the reason they didn't was not because there was another biological connection. No. It was because it was secret. I mean, yeah. at, at its core, that is what it's about.
0: This next little piece is going to sound a little bit different. Um, I interviewed Danny up in my office at R.J. Joya's, and then we did the live event downstairs Danny's comments at the close of the live event were very poignant, and despite the difference in the, you know, sound environments, I thought I'd like you to hear it. So, Danny, let's close with this. There's a Hebrew um, word that I'm actually reading a book on now, and you close your book with this word. And the word is hineni, which in Hebrew means here I am. Tell us what that word means to you now.
1: Yeah, um, I should say a couple of things about that. One is that you know people have been asking me during Q&As, I'll just ask myself a question and answer it. Um, they've been asking a lot about like my Jewish identity and how I feel now that I know that I'm half, you know, Scandinavian or whatever. Um, like, does that make me feel less Jewish? And um, and I've been thinking a lot about that. And it actually makes me feel more Jewish because now I actually understand what was so other and confusing about. I always felt strange when I was in um, Orthodox institutions and stuff like that because. Because I stuck out like a sore thumb, and and I was treated that way in some way. So now understanding that makes that just be gone. Um, But, you know, I was raised, um, I was fluent in Hebrew. I went to a yeshiva until I was in seventh grade. And so Hebrew, even though I can't speak it anymore, uh, and I'm not religious at all, Hebrew words come to me. They're part of my psyche, and they were part of my psyche you know for 54 years and being being part of this lineage that stretches back into the shuttles of Eastern Europe was a part of my psyche for 54 years and so it's not it's not like it's no longer part of my psyche um, and so uh, and in moments of great emotion or, or 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 fear or you know just heightened emotion Hebrew words almost inevitably fly into my mind and so Hineni uh, um, really has to do with I mean it's a moment where i I ultimately feel um, that I come from three people, which is a very strange, you know, it took a village <laughs> to make me. And uh, it's, you know, my mother and my father and my biological father. And uh, Hineni is something that I say toward the end of the, I, you know, internally say toward the end of the book to my father, to my father who mm. raised me. Um, and and I'm really I'm I'm saying you know here I am here I am you know all of me, I now understand that. Well, on that note, um, we will close um, with
0: a thank you for writing yet another book uh, that makes me stay up all night, um, and now I have a Fitbit to prove that it kept me up all night, but. But again, Danny, what you've done in this book, which is something that I think is so important for, um, is such an important element of what writers can do, but you've done this for so long, and this book does it again, and that is make it safe to have conversations, make it safe to think differently about things, and ultimately for people to not feel like they're the only ones who might feel... A certain way. So I want to thank you for sharing inheritance with us. I want to thank you for getting off the plane and zipping down to R.J. Julia's um, and joining us for this conversation tonight. So thank you, Danny Shapiro.
1: Thanks, (laughs) Doctor.
0: Thanks again to Danny Shapiro. Her new memoir Inheritance is available now. Make sure to pick up a copy at your favorite independent bookstore. And you definitely want to check out Danny's upcoming podcast Family Secrets, which is launching soon. We've got two previews up and you this way you can get a little taste of what I'm sure is going to be a wildly successful uh, podcast series. So please subscribe to Family Secrets right now. And of course, subscribe to Just the Right Book if you haven't done that already. It's free to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Pandora, wherever you like to listen to your podcast. Also, we'd love for you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keo. Thank you all so much for listening.